Welcome to Live and Learn, a production of the Honors Program at the University of Connecticut. I'm Danielle Shalou, and this is a special Thanksgiving episode. Today's episode is a little bit longer than usual, but just right for your ride over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house. We're talking with Dr. Pamela Diggle from the Ecology and Evolutionary Biology Department about the botany of Thanksgiving. While turkey may be the star of the show, Thanksgiving dinner wouldn't be the same without plants. To talk for a minute about uh, potatoes, the primary part of uh, potatoes is starch, and all starch is stored in a, in a plant structure called a starch grain, or amyloplast if you want to get all botany about it. And, um, and this, so starch is essentially long, unbranched or branched chains of glucose, so sugar molecules that are linked end on end. And in order to store them, the plants synthesize these things, and they're packed into these starch grains really, really tightly, just spiral and spiral and spiral. You can imagine taking a long chain and wrapping it round and round and round. And they're packed so tightly that they're almost crystalline, and they'll actually refract light like a prism. Um, And they're packed in so tightly that it's really hard for water to get in, and it's really hard for digestive enzymes to get into these starch grains. So how do we eat them? Yeah, so <laughs> that doesn't bode well for, for starch as the obvious um, food source. So, so we cook them, of course, and, and um, you, so you can't, as I understand it, get a lot of nutrition out of uncooked um, uh, rice or potatoes or so forth. Um, and so cooking will actually disrupt the structure of that starch grain enough that water can start to get in, and the, the starch molecules, these long, long molecules, will start to move against each other and open up just enough that our digestive enzymes can get in there and start releasing the sugars, which is what we want. Now, in some families, there are arguments or conversations, discussions, that can span years about whether or not to whip the potatoes. They sound nice and fluffy, but... Uh, that... Um, Whipping the potatoes is the wrong answer, and um, because when you uh, whip cooked potatoes, it disrupts the starch grains to such an extent that these long, windy starch molecules are released from the starch grains, and they wrap around each other and form glue. And so the trick is to treat your potatoes really gently and put lots of butter on them so that the starch uh, things can slide against one another. (laughs) And again, potatoes are a a storage structure where plants are putting starch in order to support growth for the following year. Um, And although potatoes are underground, they're not roots. We associate underground parts of plants with being roots. And they're actually shoots. Like onions. Like onions are shoots as well, yeah. And so when you're cooking Thanksgiving dinner, you can amaze your friends and family by picking up the potato and turning it to one of the pointier ends. And as you look at that potato, you should see that what we think of as the eyebrows go away from that pointy end in a spiral. And that's diagnostic of shoots because leaves are typically attached to, um, to shoots in a, in a spiral. And the, the little nubbins that are associated with each of those eyebrows, the little potato eyes that'll sprout on you if you let them, are essentially how a potato makes a branch, which is also a characteristic of a shoot. And that's in contrast with the other potato that we eat at Thanksgiving, the sweet potato, which is a, a, a root, a full-on root. And if you turn that on its pointy end, you won't see any of the, the leaf or branchy um, parts. Um, now, now, sweet potatoes are the same thing as yams. 
sweet potatoes are really different from yams. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so that's fun fact. Fun fact. Sweet potatoes are not yams. Yeah, and um, and I have no idea where why we started calling sweet potatoes yams in the first place. Um, but but pretty much everything that's sold in U.S. markets that's labeled yams are actually sweet potatoes. Yams are enormous um, underground structures that are mostly available in Africa and a few ethnic markets in big cities, New York City and, and so forth. So if you want to be shocked, Google <laughs> yam and see the kind of enormous, enormous we're talking. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty interesting. And find out for me why we started calling them yams in the first place, because I would like to know. <laughs> yeah, that's my next yeah. project is to find out why they're the same thing yeah. or why you think they're the same thing. Yeah. Okay, so other fun factoids. Again, those sweet potatoes are a storage organ. Um, they're full of starch, but sweet potatoes also have an enzyme uh, that can break down that starch uh, into sugars, into the component sugars. But um, like all enzymes, they denature at high temperatures. And so if you cook sweet potatoes at fairly low temperatures um, so that enzyme can uh, be active for a while, it'll start breaking down the starch into sugar and you'll have sweeter sweet potatoes. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, what happens when you cook or, um, or maybe the cell biology of, of eating plants. And so uh, although I don't associate apples necessarily uh, with Thanksgiving, it's a... Well, pie. Pie, yeah. Okay. But it, when you eat a fresh apple and it's so crisp and it tastes so good, part of what makes a plant part crisp is that each cell of a of a plant is um, has a water-filled bag called a vacuole inside that's full of pressure. And so when you bite down on a crisp plant part, the cells literally explode against your teeth. And so you don't have to press so hard to chew, and that's what makes something feel crisp. It's actually helping you out and exploding in your mouth. Um, and so when you let something wilt, it actually takes more effort to um, to crush up those cells and get nutrition out of them, and it's just less pleasing. That's and sometimes those crisp ones are not necessarily the best ones for cooking. Part of plant cell walls give plants different um, textures when you cook with them, so all plant cells are stuck to one another by a layer, <laughs> and, um, but that layer has different properties and, and different um, responses to temperature. And when you cook some plants, that glue layer um, remains intact and the cell structure will remain intact. And in other plants, when you cook them, that layer dissolves and the cells kind of separate. And so going back to potatoes, um, if you make potato salad, you want one kind of potato. And if you make baked potatoes, you want a different kind of potato. Baked potatoes are the kind where that middle layer dissolves. And so you get kind of fluffiness to them. Whereas the potatoes that you use for potato salad, it doesn't dissolve. And so those potatoes hang together and you can make them chunkier, whatever you want. And it's the same with apples, right? So the, the, some apples will retain their shape for pie and, and because those cells stay glued. And some for sauce or other you know, uses, the cells will uh, break up and, and they just have different properties because of the chemistry of the walls. Very cool. So we've been talking about plants as interesting organisms that are making a living and putting something aside and raising families and just trying to get by. So plants are really amazing chemists. They, they essentially synthesize themselves out of thin air. They take out, up carbon dioxide 
and they take up mineral nutrients from the soil, and they can synthesize every single thing that they need to make themselves, which we cannot do. We have to get vitamins and nutrients from the things that we eat. So plants are yummy, and everything's trying to eat them. So plants also use their amazing chemistry to defend themselves. And so some of the things that we do with plants um, take advantage or try to get around this defensive chemistry. And so one of the vegetables that, that my family has traditionally eaten at Thanksgiving is Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts are members of the cabbage family, broccoli and so forth. And a lot of people really, really don't like them and don't like the way they smell. And that smell is derived from the way these plants defend themselves. And they really? have, yeah, so they have this really creative way that they, they store two compounds in different parts of the cell, which are benign when they're separate. But if they mix, they react and form a poisonous, toxic mustard, something or other, I've forgotten. And so the plant keeps these things separate doesn't hurt the plant, but if an herbivore chomps on the cells, those structures burst, those chemicals um, combine, and releases this toxic compound, which is what we smell when the plants are cooking. So are Brussels sprouts toxic? Well, they are not toxic now, but they were pretty obnoxious when they were first domesticated. So we've actually bred a lot of that stuff out of them. But that's what that sort of remnant is what you're smelling when you cook those vegetables. So, and plants just are amazing chemists. They, they synthesize so many different things that are toxic to different herbivores, things that want to eat them. Another example is um, sometimes when you're making salad and you chop lettuce, you'll see some sort of white milky sap come out of it, or onions also do it, um, which is latex. Which and is Latex, wait. Latex, Latex yeah. is in lettuce? Yeah, latex is in lettuce, but, but it's, it's sticky. And so um, insects will bite into something with latex, and the latex oozes out and gums up their mouth parts, and they can't eat the plant anymore. So some of the um, things that plants synthesize, these chemicals, are obnoxious in some instances, but tasty in others. So there are many things like all the, the chili peppers and so forth that are synthesizing these chemicals as defenses, but we actually find them tasty. And so a good example of that is sage which is often used to season turkeys. And the distinctive flavor and odor of sage comes from glands and hairs that are on the surface of the plant where they're synthesizing an oil that's volatile. A lot of the things that we use as culinary spices uh, have these volatile oils and give our foods um, this lovely aroma and taste. Um, But the plant's, as far as we know, synthesizing these oils to defend itself more for defending the plant against um, other plants. The oils get into the soil and prevent germination of other plants. That would outcompete for the resources. But there's also thyme. The oils in thyme actually defend against herbivores like snails. But so examples, though, of of plants that synthesize these oils are, um, you know, all the aromatic things, you know, the marjoram and the thymes and the basil and oregano and all of those things. So another big player on Thanksgiving, we talked about apple pie. Pumpkin pie is another big one. Yeah, and so pumpkins I just find astonishing. Um, So pumpkins are annuals. They're planted in the spring and harvested in the fall. And they develop from, uh, so so the pumpkin fruit develops from the ovary of the pumpkin flower, which is maybe the size of a pea to a marble. It's, you know, not that big, maybe marble. And, you know, 
easily many, many pounds of pumpkin. And that's all sugars and that have been, that are, you know, produced by photosynthesis in the leaves and pumped into those fruits. And um, there are, so the pumpkins that we make pies out of are, um, you know, modest size and, and sweet, but there's a whole hobby of raising giant pumpkins. And these pumpkins can get to the size of a small car. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, and so that's all sugar that's been pumped, that's been synthesized by this plant in a really short period of time and goes all through the, it's all funneled through the stem of the, that fruit into these things that are growing pounds a day. It's just astonishing. And what's the evolutionary advantage to being able to grow that fast? It's a good question. <laughs> I could speculate. Because it seems, well, it just seems like that's a huge amount of energy that the plant is investing to do what? Yeah, so, so there's no natural pumpkins that are that big. So the, um, and we don't, we don't actually, I think we know about the um, progenitor of, of pumpkins. And, you know, so they may have been baseball-sized or maybe football-sized. I'm not exactly sure. And that's not uncommon for fruits naturally to get that big. And so large fruits are typically um, eaten by animals, and the plant is providing nourishment to the animal, and the animal is dispersing the fruits. And so typically, these kind of fleshy fruits that are appealing to animals, the seeds that are inside are you know, the next generation. And they're typically um, able to pass through animal guts without being digested. And so the animal will eat the fruit, go somewhere else, poop it out, and then the plant gets its seeds dispersed. So it's part of this um, deal <laughs> between mm -hmm. plants. And it's the way plants are manipulating animals to do their bidding and, and carry them around. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the, the pumpkins, you know, probably had larger dispersers that um, were attracted to the larger fruits. Okay. But that's and then, again. And then humans came along and said, let's see if we can get, get it to be the to size of a car. Yeah. <laughs> Cinderella yeah. is going to be real. That's right. We're going to turn it into a horse-drawn carriage. <laughs> actually, I really want one now. <laughs> They're amazing. There's actually people in Connecticut that grow them competitively. I, I went to some country fair, and they had these huge pumpkins. There was this big competition, and then you could, for a dollar, they would give you seeds from the winner. Oh. Um, and I don't know what happened to the seeds. But I'm pretty sure I don't have a giant pumpkin in my backyard. So I'll have to check on that when I'm home for Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't be good for pie anyways. Because the sugars are... Yeah, it's just going to be all stringy and nasty inside. Well, that's kind of disappointing, yeah. actually. <laughs> They're not good for much of anything except being big. But it's cool looking. Yeah. All right. Is. So we could finish up by talking about a few plants that we don't eat, but that might be around the Thanksgiving dinner tables. For okay conversational gambits. <laughs> and so if you're um, having a, a fancy meal with linen, napkins, and, and so forth, the, the linen that you're using comes from um, the flax plant. The supportive um, structures of flax plants are woven into the fibers that make your linen napkins. And if you're maybe a little less fancy and you use cotton napkins and tablecloths, that's also woven from plant parts, the hairs that um, grow on cotton seeds. And then if you're like me and you pull out the paper towels and paper napkins, then that's um, products of plant pulp, so wood and bark and things that have been dissolved up and pressed into paper. 
If you have candles on your table, they may be bayberry candles, which are traditional at Thanksgiving, which are um, the wax for the candles comes from the fruits of the bayberry, which is a um, species that's native to New England, and you can harvest your own wax. Maybe you did this in really? kindergarten with your parents and make your own what candles. Is, what does a bayberry look like? They're shrubs, kind of oval, green leaves, and the berries are really distinctive. They're blue, but they're clearly covered by lots of gray-green wax. And, and so you, you melt the wax off the surface of the berries. And okay. with a lot of berries, you could get a candle. All right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Another um, science project yeah. for the listeners at home. Yeah. And then finally, um, if you're having uh, wine with your turkey meal, um, it's no doubt been aged in oak barrels. And there's a couple different, there's many, many different kinds of oaks, but fall into two categories. One, and all oaks have big pipes that they conduct water in, xylem, if you remember that term from biology. But oaks just have these giant pipes that conduct lots of water up into the canopy of these giant oaks. And some oaks, uh, when, the, when the pipes stop conducting, will fill those pipes full of junk to essentially prevent fungi and other pathogens from invading the plant, and other oaks will leave them wide open. And so if you're going to make a barrel to age your wine, you need to make sure you have the oak where the pipes are plugged up or you're going to lose your wine uh, back into the floor. Which would be unfortunate. Yeah, so you got to know your botany if you're going to drink wine. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then let's not forget that turkeys are fed grain. And so you could think of your turkey as just highly processed plants. So basically, you're just eating plants for Thanksgiving. Yes. Yep. And while you're relaxing on break, Dr. Jiggle has a little bit of homework. Tell your listeners they have to use at least one of these at the dinner table okay. on Thanksgiving, and they get geek points for okay. so, doing so. For after you listen to this one, instead of one specific code word, if to tell us which one is your favorite fun fact. Visit honors.uconn.edu slash podcast to subscribe and enter to win an honors program t-shirt by using your favorite fun fact. As a reminder, we talked about potatoes and starch grains, sweet potatoes, yams, apples, herbs, lettuce, Brussels sprouts, pumpkins, and table decorations. If none of those are your favorite, here's one more. Happy Thanksgiving. Onions have a defense mechanism as well. This sulfur that makes your eyes sting? Yes. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. Um, I don't think anybody's ever looked at that as a defensive compound. The, the chemistry of why onions make your eyes sting is um, actually pretty mysterious um, because the, the onion is mostly storing fructose, which is a yummy sugar. So, it, you know, it makes sense that it would defend that in some way. And so there's some sulfur compound that volatilizes and gets in your eyes. But then there's some chemistry that happens once the like sulfur... in your eyeball. In your eyeball, in the liquid in your eyeball. Okay. And that's what I've read different papers that disagree on what's actually happening um, once it lands on your wet eye. So add that to your list of potential <laughs> thesis topics. Yeah. <laughs> 